The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 45 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my president or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing, I say, during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So I'm going to start off the show like I do all the time by thanking my guest last week, Alan Espinosa. So Alan is the Director of Security Operations for Online Business Systems, and he currently serves on the Board of Directors for the InfraGuard National Members Alliance. That's the public-private partnership organization with the FBI. Very, very, very cool uh, organization. If you don't know it, look it up. Check it out. That's InfraGuard without the the U in in the guard. It's I-N-F-R-A-G-A-R-D. And so if you just Google it, you can find all the information out there. But perhaps just as interesting is the nonprofit he is starting called PEDALS. He named it PEDALS. It stands for Providing Essential Tools in Life Services. And it's an IRS tax-exempt 501c3 company aimed at providing minority and underprivileged communities with topical information, tools, and instruction so as to enhance their lives, their careers, in their futures in the broader technology space. So a very, very cool initiative that he's kicking off. And some of the topical information will include, but not be limited to, English language classes, basic finance instruction, and technology and cybersecurity training for minority professionals looking to advance their careers in the technology space. So this is a really big part of the show, folks. Um, We're really big on this at Task Force 7. If, If you're a regular listener to the show, you know that we're always working hard to expose women and other minority professionals to the career and financial opportunities that exist in the cybersecurity space. And Alan was a great example, and, and he's a great role model for Hispanic and other minority students and professionals on what they can do in this space if they apply themselves and have the focus and discipline that he did to accomplish the great many things he has done in his career in the technology and cybersecurity space. And now he's playing it forward, and we love it. We love it. We're really happy to have him on the show last week. So we're going to continue to highlight minority professionals like Alan and others, not only on Task Force 7 Radio, but also on Task Force 7, uh, the platform and and the the company Task Force 7 Technologies as as well. When we launch uh, later on this year, 
with the purpose of helping to bridge the great cyber divide that seems to have been resulting from the ongoing underrepresentation of minorities in the fast-growing field of cybersecurity. So, Alan's a patriot, folks. He's a patriot. He's doing a lot of great things and interesting things with his career, and it's a really must-listen-to episode last week. So, if you missed last week's episode, not to fear, you can listen to it anytime on playback, whenever it's convenient for you. When you're getting ready in the morning or on your way to work, whatever works for you, it's, that's the beauty of internet radio. Alan Espinosa on last week's episode. That's episode number 44 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering, how can you listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback? Well, I know you're going to be shocked about this, but I'm going to tell you, this is still the most frequent question that I get about the show. Still today, it's the most frequent question, and it's a legit question, and I want people to know. You can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at voiceamerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you go to Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, folks. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. Thanks for all the support out there, folks. So... I'm really excited because tonight we have another brilliant guest appearing on the show with us. We're going to have a, none other than Shelly Westman on the show with us tonight. And not that I need to because so many people know Shelly, but just in case, let me tell you a little bit about Shelly Westman. Westman. Well, Shelly is currently a principal and partner with Ernst & Young's cybersecurity practice. And prior to joining EY, Shelly served as a senior vice president of alliances and field operations at Protegrity. And so before that, she spent a, a short period of time, 18 years with IBM, ending her time there as Vice President of Operations and Strategic Initiatives for IBM Security. Very, very big jobs, folks. Uh, lots of exposure in the market, lots of, lots of experience here. As part of her role over there at IBM, she led the university programs for IBM Security and was involved in several IBM boards and committees on hiring and skills. And she was the founder of WISE. That's the Woman in Security Excelling. It's an IBM group devoted to advancing women in, in security. So something very interesting about Shelley, prior to joining IBM, she practiced law in Raleigh for about five years, concentrating her practice in the area of civil litigation. So she's very well known in the industry. In 2016, Shelley was appointed to a three-year term on the board on Higher Education and Workforce for the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. In 2016, she was an honorary of 40 over 40 and received a 2016 Executive Women's Forum Woman of Influence Award in the category of Security Corporate Practitioner. And much more recently, Shelley was just named a 2018 Leader in Diversity for her work on getting more women and minorities into cybersecurity. So, Shelly, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks so much, George. Glad to be here. So, look, it's great to have you here with us. And you have a very, very interesting background. And people love to hear 
about the, the roadmap and I guess the historical uh, background of how people got into their positions. So please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Actually, I do have an interesting background. So from the time I can remember, probably since I was nine years old, all I wanted to do was practice law. And I attribute that to a cousin that I have who is very wealthy and came up to our house all the time with big wads of money in his pocket. And I thought, wow, this is a great career. He makes a lot of money. He gets to argue with people. You know, it sounded really, really exciting. So I wanted to be a lawyer. So I went to law school. I loved law school. You learn something new every day. You really learn how to think and synthesize information. But I hated practicing law. And that was such a disappointment to me because that was all I remembered wanting to do since I was nine years old. And so I was very fortunate at that point after practicing for five years to be able to get into a corporate environment. And I never thought I'd be in a corporate environment. So it was a lot of new things. But I came in, and you mentioned earlier I spent most of my career at IBM, I came into IBM contracts, and that was kind of the tie-in between law school and practicing law and the business side. And I did that for a bit and really got a taste of being on the business world and had a lot of different roles at IBM, a very amazing career. I had about 12 roles in the 18 years I was there and became known as someone who could get things done. No matter what the circumstances were, I figured out a way to get it done. And that's how I eventually got into security. As I was being promoted through the ranks, one of the new assignments they gave me was vice president of hardware security. So this is very interesting because I know a lot of people want to learn about how, how you pivot uh, from certain careers and in certain industries eventually into the cybersecurity and larger technology space. And the story about how you pivoted into cybersecurity specifically is very fascinating. How did you get from practicing law to, to fighting cybercrime? And how hard was it to pivot yourself from, into the career in technology and cybersecurity? Well, I, I would say that I had multiple pivot points. And many of the jobs that I was given, I had no exact experience in. And so it really becomes a matter of taking your core skill sets, what you're good at, and then learning quickly and applying it to your new role. And one of the things that I tell people, and um, especially we'll get into this conversation later, you know, that women are sometimes their own worst enemy in this sort of thing, is say yes. Say yes to every opportunity that you have. So when I was given all these new roles, I always said yes. And then I worried about how I was going to figure it out later. And, um, you know, along the way, I had done everything in between. I told you I started in contracts, but I also ran operations. At one point, I had a $3 billion budget that I was in charge of. I grew businesses. I grew a business from $25 million to over a billion dollars around cloud, analytics, smarter planet. I um, put offerings out into market. I ran strategy for our hardware division at IBM. And then I was given this challenge of, of cybersecurity. It was a very new role on the hardware side. And I had to learn an entire new lingo. I didn't know anything about it. In fact, I tell people, um, in all seriousness, I was one of those people that changed my password eight times in a row to get it back to the same password. <laughs> right, right. 
and, so and I, think, I did that, right? And because now of that, I can relate to what all of our employees that don't live in the security world are going through. They don't understand security. All they want to do is, is do their job. So it was a very interesting pivot. I took a lot of leaps. I always said yes to every opportunity that I was given. So you're really smart. When I, when I, was, when I was younger, in my 20s, I was a police officer, and, I, and, the, and the chief of police would tell me that he was going to send me to a certain type of training or I was going to take a certain type of role. And I would go into his office, and I would be like, well, you know, I, I'm not really interested in that. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll take a pass on the training. And he'd you know, try to convince me in a sentence or two that it was a good thing for my career. And I was like, ah, you know, I was skeptical. And finally he said, hey, read us. This is a police department. It's not a democracy. You're gone. Right. <laughs> Thank God I had that. I'll be honest with you, because it was turned out to be such good experiences, and, and it helped me diversify my skills and advance my career, which eventually, you know, helped me to to keep pivoting, helped me keep learning. So, what do you notice as being different in the field of law versus the field of cybercrime? So, first of all, let me start with the similarities. So. In both fields, you really need an analytical mind. You have to be able to take a lot of information, synthesize it, and form a plan. You're just doing that in a different approach. But the thing I noticed as the largest difference is that law, specifically the kind I was doing, litigation, was very adversarial. You were in court. You were working towards a court date. So you were on opposite sides. Now, cybersecurity, while it's adversarial against the people trying to get into our systems, by its nature is actually very much a team sport. There's nothing I do in any of my cybersecurity roles that I do by myself. We're working with large teams across the organizations. We're working with clients, all as a team, to try to make sure that we've got the best defenses up there and that we are resilient. And so that's what we're doing for our clients. So I think the main difference is that I feel like in cybersecurity, everyone's in a boat rowing together, right? You've got one goal, you're rowing together, but it's not adversarial from, you know, one side of the house. And of course, it's adversarial in the sense that we want to keep the bad guys out of our system. But there's very much this, this team sport, this camaraderie, um, this working together and leveraging other people's expertise to get things done. You know, so right now you're a partner with Ernst & Young, and it's one of the big four, and there's a lot of people out there that wonder what that's like, and, and what exactly does that entail, and how do you get to that position, and what do you do all day? And so, can you tell us a little bit about your role at, at, at EY? Sure. And first, let me start out by saying when you hear of these big four firms, a lot of people don't necessarily think about the advisory services piece. You're thinking audit, you're thinking tax. But there's also at EY a very large advisory practice and cybersecurity falls under that. I lead our Southeast region cyber practice. And what we do is we are advising clients in all areas of cybersecurity, really helping them prepare for what we now know is the inevitable. And we do that through a lot of different ways. We look at now, we pull all the resources of the firm in to make sure we're using digital and analytics. We're looking at their operations. We're looking at their strategy. We're teaching them how to be resilient, taking them through exercises to make sure that they know exactly what to do if an incident happens and when an incident happens. So it's really um, a very amazing organization. I'm so excited to be part of it. I joined about a year ago, 
And with NEY, we've got about 7,000 cybersecurity professionals across the world between our risk and cyber practice that focused on this. So when I talked about the team sport sort of thing, you know, it's leveraging all these different competencies, people that came out of the military, people that have been in cyber their entire careers, people that have diverse backgrounds like myself, really leveraging everyone's expertise to help our clients. And that's what we do on a regular basis. So you said something interesting to me. You do a lot of strategy consultation with a lot of firms out there. And strategy has been the topic of a conversation here on Task Force 7 Radio on, on, on a few episodes. I'd like to get your opinion. In, in your consultation with other firms, and I guess a wide variety of different industries, are they formulating their strategy correctly? Or are some, are some, some firms even, don't even have a strategy, I think. I think that's right. What we see a lot of times is that organizations are using point products, and sometimes they have multiple products from 40, 50 different vendors that don't talk to themselves, don't talk to each other, and are not integrated. And so if you get in a situation like that where you read about the latest breach and you figure out that XYZ software might have helped with that breach and you go buy that, that's not really a strategy. You've really got to start from an organizational perspective and look entirely across the board to make sure that your strategy is integrated, that it's tied into where the business is going, where the business is, and um, what sort of changes you're seeing. And where we really see people get into trouble, as I said, is where they're actually spending a lot of money and a lot of resources, but they're attacking it wrong because they don't have a cohesive strategy. So, Shelly, we have to take a little time to go to commercial break, but we're right back to talk about some more shop around how to get women into cybersecurity. I really want to get your, your thoughts on this. This is something that uh, is a deep passion of yours. It's a deep passion of mine, and I think, uh, I think a lot of people are really interested in doing this. So, so hey, if, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guests, principal and partner with Ernst & Young, Shelley Westman. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. 
SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the principal and partner with Ernst & Young Cybersecurity Advisory Services, Shelly Westman. So, Shelly, let's talk about your work in advocating for more women in cybersecurity. This is something that we're both passionate about. Have you always been interested in, in gender diversity issues since in, in your, your, your whole career? Actually, no. In fact, for most of my career, I never gave any thought to the fact that I was a woman. I know that might sound funny, but I did my job, expected to be promoted, and I was promoted many times during the course of my career. But I wasn't part of any women's group or anything like that. It just was a fact that I was a woman, but I didn't pay any attention to it. So this is interesting because, you know, we have such a, a crisis, a talent crisis in cybersecurity. So what made you become interested in advocating for women in cybersecurity once you got into the cybersecurity space? Right. So once I got into the field and I read a statistic that said at that time that only 10% of cybersecurity professionals were women, I decided that I needed to take action. And that was the first time in my career that I really felt like I had a responsibility, not to myself per se, but to all those out there that wanted to become part of the field or that were part of the field and were facing challenges. And so that's when I decided that I had a title, a vice president title, and that I could help others by becoming an advocate for getting more women into security. And it was at this point that I formed a group, and the group's had such amazing success, George. It started at 
200 members, which is really great for a group to start at, but it's grown to 800 members. As you mentioned earlier, it's an IBM internal group, and the group there is still doing amazing things. And I watch it with interest. I've got a lot of friends over there still. They're really just doing a great job. And at EY, we also have a group around women in cybersecurity. That's great. So the Women uh, in Cybersecurity group in IBM is called WISE, right? That's the group I mentioned before? Right, WISE, Women in Security Excelling. Right, and then in EY, what's the group called? Women in Cybersecurity. Excellent. EY, Excellent. Women, in, EY Women in Cybersecurity. So you mentioned, you know, I've heard all kinds of statistics, and usually they're within 10 to 13% of, of uh, the talent in the cybersecurity space are women. That's a huge huge discrepancy, right, between men and women in the cybersecurity space. With some of the effort that's been going on, I think some of these efforts have been going on for, for quite some time. Why has this not changed at all? And in in, in, why is the number not moving? How come we're not moving the dial? Oh, my gosh. That is the million-dollar question. And so, right, if you look at the 2017 Global Information Security Study, which was done by ISC Squared and Frost and Sullivan, the number comes out to 11%. But you're right, 10%, 11%, it's irrelevant. It's nowhere near enough. On top of that, men are four times more likely to hold C-suite and exec-level positions and nine times more likely to hold managerial positions than women in the cybersecurity field. So when we ask, why has this not changed? And there has been a lot of discussion and effort and a lot of women speaking up for change. But first of all, the change takes time. And second of all, I want to spend a little bit of time, and we can either do it now or later, but talking about the fact that women cannot do this themselves. So I can stand on every single rooftop. I can talk about the fact that we need more women in there. It's not going to really drive change. We need men who are representing 90% of the cybersecurity interests to get on board with this. And I want to talk a little bit about why that matters, why diversity even matters, why this should be important to men. So before we get into men's role and and Mm -hmm. other folks' role into attracting women into cybersecurity, I want to dive a little bit deeper into what you just said. And that's around why diversity even matters in this field. I mean, what's your opinion on that? So my opinion on that is that this is a business imperative, right? We don't talk about diversity because it's something that's nice to have. We don't talk about it because we want to check any boxes. It's actually a business imperative. And there's been study after study that says that diverse teams drive better results across the organization, that diverse teams are more innovative, objective, and collaborative. And that is critical in the field of cybersecurity. If you have a team, think about it, with 10 men of a similar background, everyone is going to come up with the same sort of ideas. In a fast-moving field like cybersecurity, we have to be innovating. We have to be out thinking those bad guys. We need diverse teams to do that. In fact, some of the statistics around this, Catalyst did a study that said when there's more women in the C-suite, it leads to a 34% higher return to stakeholders. And a Credit Suisse study echoes this and said large cap companies with at least one woman on the board outperform companies with no female leadership. So what I say to everyone is that this is not just a nice to have. We want to perform better. We want that 
unique set of different thoughts. We need to do that, first of all, to help drive our organizations, but also to make sure that we're taking into account all of these different viewpoints to come up with the best answer possible for our clients. And without a diverse team, it's not possible. You know, I think you're 100% right. It's really the diversity of thought that carries the day here, especially in a space like cybersecurity where the problems are just coming at us every day. It's ever-changing, and we have to set up these constant problem-solving processes for continuous improvement. And because we're constantly being challenged, if we don't have that diversity of thought in the room, we're at a disadvantage. Exactly. Exactly right. So, why, why are not women picking careers in cybersecurity? I mean, the, the opportunities are there. Why aren't they moving into the cybersecurity space? So I'm going to ask everyone listening to close your eyes and imagine that you hear the term hacker. What do you think of? I will bet that you think of a young man wearing a hoodie in their parents' basement, hacking all night, drinking Red Bull, and not going to sleep. <laughs> that sort of image is not attractive to women. Right? It's, it's really a misnomer about what the profession is. So terms like hacker have negative connotations. That's one reason. Second, girls don't see role models that look like them. It's very hard to imagine that you want to be something if you don't see someone else that looks like you and you don't know that's an opportunity. There's also a belief that cybersecurity is a very lonely job, which really stems back into that portrayal of a hacker. I think... Some women think that they're going to be sitting alone at their computer all day, um, just working by themselves. And that is so far from the truth. So I think there's a lot of image things that we have to work on as an industry to really change that. And one other point I want to make, um, of course, we need more women and we need more minorities in cybersecurity, but we also need more people in general because the overall cybersecurity talent gap and shortage is really mind-boggling. So when I do a lot of my speaking events at universities and high schools talking to them, I never single out just women because we need first and foremost people. We want the best and brightest people in the organization. But where that gets interesting is it, it of course, involves women. Women are making up 50% of our college graduates and only 11% in the field. So that's a lot of talent that we're not getting into our industry. You know, so I was reading a post the other day on LinkedIn and it was, a, it was from a female cybersecurity professional and she was just loathing the fact that there was some type of commercial ad out there that had a female with a black hoodie on <laughs> trying to, you know, make them out to be some type of hacker. It was some type of, you know, cybersecurity technical ad. And she was just going off on the fact that they, you know, put that on the female because I guess, like you said, that's just not attractive to females. And it, I guess it doesn't fit. And, you know, it makes me, you know, even think about when, when we launch uh, the other platforms and, you know, other services and even merchandise on, on Task Force 7, if we should even put a black hoodie out there, <laughs> a Task Force 7 logo. I mean, we, we have it, but we should have other things too that are more attractive for females. And, and, and I, guess, um, I guess don't, you know, turn them away from the industry. Like you said, it's just not attractive to them. But what sort of issues do women face once they're here? I mean, it's okay, so we have trouble getting them here, right? We have to change the way we think about a lot of different things. And we're going to get into, they're going to dive a little bit deeper into this on the show. But you know, once they're here, 
What do we have to do to retain them? Well, that's a very important topic as well, because once we get the women into the field, we can't afford to have any of them leaving because all that will do is drive the numbers down. So there's been studies that say women face, first of all, discrimination in the field. 28% said their opinions are not valued by the organization. 51% experience some form of discrimination. And studies report that women are getting up to 8% lower pay across every type of security job. So there are a lot of issues that women face once they're in the field. And we have to make sure that we're understanding those issues and supporting women from the very moment they decide to pick a path into cyber, but also throughout their careers, career in cyber. So let's, let's turn our, our attention to a way to, to solve this problem. And I guess with everybody sort of, it seems, a lot of people pounding away at this issue, you know, trying to move the dial, trying to get some momentum here. I think some people are, are asking the question, is solving this issue even possible? What say you? I strongly believe yes. We have so many reasons for optimism around this. When we look back into history, women have made great strides in many areas and many fields that were once dominated by men. If you just look at roles like a lawyer and doctor and so many other roles, those were at one point in time very, very male-dominated. So it's possible to solve this, but the problem is there's not just one answer. There's not one easy thing that we can all do. It's going to take a village, as the saying goes. We really need to have a 360-degree effort to hit at this from all fronts. The other thing is that change takes time. When we start to work to get middle schoolers interested in cybersecurity, if you just think about that, we've then got to wait till they finish high school, which is four years, finish college or some sort of technical um, program. So we're talking four to six years from when a middle school girl identifies that they want to go into cybersecurity. So it is going to take time. I do think it's very solvable. Uh, but we need everyone's help. This needs to be everyone's problem and everyone needs to be part of the solution. We cannot put this on women to solve themselves. So if you walk into any computer science or related course in college, it looks like a fraternity club, right? It's not, there really are not a lot of women in the candidate pool coming out of some of these technical sciences. And, and especially in the major universities. And so I see a lot of organizations requiring their business units to hire 50% women into the organization. So if you have, you're going to hire 10 people this year, 5% or five of them have to be women. So if you're at a, if you're at a 50% requirement goal, well, first of all, uh, the first question would be, do you think that's a, the right way to approach this? And then the second question would be, how is that possible? If everyone, if everyone had the same requirement and we only have about 10% of our classes, maybe 15% of our classes in these technical sciences that are female to begin with, when you go to the colleges to recruit, the numbers are not, obviously not in your favor, right? So how does all this work? I do think we have to put some sort of goals and targets out there because what happens is this notion of unconscious bias. And that's really something that for me was life-changing when I learned about this. I actually attended an amazing event sponsored by 
Working Mother magazine that talked about unconscious bias. So a lot of these things I think are happening unconsciously, but people tend to gravitate towards people like them. So if you have men that are doing the hiring, right, whether sometimes I'll say it could be overt, but a lot of times they're just preferring a candidate that has the same background. When you put a target out there and you say, we have to do this, it really forces you to look differently. I think you're exactly right. Is 50% the right number? That's going to be hard to meet across the board. But I think it's a great goal to start with to make sure that we're not losing candidates as they go through the pipeline due to unconscious bias of the people that are doing the hiring. So before we, we take a break here, and in the next segment, I want to get into a little bit deeper dive on what we need to do to solve this problem. I want to ask you, just tell folks about what you think in terms of the lack of women in cybersecurity and how it is jeopardizing our industry as a whole. Do you have any last thoughts on that before we go to break? Absolutely. So first of all, I would say um, it's jeopardizing all of us. We talked about it earlier because of the lack of diversity of thought. So these cyber attacks are becoming more serious, more costly, and more complicated every day. If we don't get the talent into this field to help stem that, it's opening all of us up to serious consequences. But on top of that, I want to say it is never too late to get into this field. And so I want to tell people that if it's something that you're interested in, try it out. There's so many things that we do that I've done during the course of my career that I never thought I would be doing. If you put me in a room for two weeks and told me to map out my career path, I would have failed if I had nothing else to do for two weeks. It's such an exciting field. So you can't let your lack of um, knowledge or experience stand in the way. Take a course, do an internship, express interest, talk to someone in the field. Because by getting more women and more minorities into there, it's going to help us as an overall industry. Okay, Shelly, we have to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with partner in EY's cybersecurity practice, Shelly Westman, after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. 
Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Ink Mansoor acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Ink Man's Soar live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the partner with Ernst & Young Cybersecurity Advisory Practice, Shelly Westman. So, Shelly, I want to pick up where we left off on the last segment, and that is what seems to be the daunting task of attracting more women into the cybersecurity field. And in other episodes, we've dug uh, deeper into this topic, uh, and we've actually gone back, you know, not only in colleges, which we talked a little bit about in the, in the previous segment, but even high school and even before that. So I kind of want to talk about roles and responsibilities and, and how we all kind of need to work together here to get this done. And so I think there's all organizations, I think males, uh, females, I think we, if we break it down into companies, high schools, education, university, everybody has a role into attracting uh, more females into the cybersecurity space. So let's start out with parents. What role do parents play in getting more girls interested in these fields when they're young? Parents play a key role in this. They are the ones that are talking to their daughters from the time they are born until they're in high school and college about what they're going to do and what they can be. So for parents, Think about it, right? We, we have this gender gap, essentially, where if you go down into the toy aisle and you look at all the girls' toys, they're pink and they're dolls and they're board games, and you go into the boys' side and they're, you know, action figures and cars and trucks. If you're a parent of a girl, don't get stuck into that model. Really understand what it is that your child likes to do and expose them to all sorts of things. It's up to you to expose them to the science and math, to seek out role models, right? To enroll them in STEM camps, to watch movies such as Hidden Figures that talks about girls doing amazing mathematical things. One of the most interesting things to me is that when I talk to college students and high school students, a lot of times their parents are discouraging them, sometimes overtly, sometimes maybe not on purpose, from pursuing these. A girl told me she got a bad grade in her college computer class, and when she called up her parents very upset, they said, well, perhaps you should change your major. Maybe this is too hard for you. 
Now think about it. Is that the same thing you would tell a boy? Or would you tell him, you better study harder, buckle up and go get extra help? Hmm. Right? So parents play a big role, even if our kids, and I have a 20-year-old, I was going to say teenager, but she's 20. A lot of times they pretend they're not listening to us. But they are absorbing everything that we say and do. So I really think that parents have a very big role in getting girls interested in these STEM fields. I don't think a lot of parents, and when they think about this at, at, you know, at, at a very younger age, you know, they're not really thinking about what their kid's going to do as a career, right? They're not really thinking about that. And when we're talking about STEM camps and math clubs, and I'm not sure they would even know where to look. I mean, it's, it, so isn't it a part, part of this is probably educating the parents as well, right? I think it is educating the parents and also educating the guidance counselors and teachers because when we look at a new field like cybersecurity or data analytics or robotics, these things were not even in existence when the parents, teachers, and guidance counselors went into school. So they very well may not know about these types of opportunities. These weren't career paths when they went. Um, so some of that is, of course, that education. But I do think I don't want to minimize the role that parents play in how they respond to girls and really making sure that they are encouraging them. And one of, I'll tell you, the most rewarding notes that I've gotten um, was from someone who said, you know, you didn't just have an impact on women in this field. As a father of young girls, you really encouraged me to think differently about how I'm encouraging my girls to be everything they can be and to pick these alternate career paths. And that was just so rewarding for me, for a father to also say, you know, it's his responsibility to impart this upon his young daughters. That's awesome. So what about companies? What about companies? I mean, companies have these enormous amount of resources. I mean, and I think to be honest with you, and a lot, of, a lot of these big companies and even smaller companies, a lot of people are sitting around looking at each other like, what are we doing wrong here? Like, how, why, are, why are we not achieving the result that we're, that we're working so hard to achieve? So what role do they play and what do they need to change? So there's a number of things that companies and organizations can do. First of all, they have to make sure that the job descriptions they're putting out there are interesting to women. And men and women think differently. And, you know, this took me a little bit of time to figure out, but it's not right or wrong. It's just different things appeal to these different groups. So, again, we talked a little bit about that term hacker, right? That's a negative connotation. So, if you write a job description that says, come join the team to fight the hackers or come help us fight cyber crime or war games or something like that, that may not be interesting to women. So really looking at the types of job descriptions that you have out there is one responsibility of companies, making sure it's emphasizing the collaborative, the analytical, the strategic nature of these roles. Another thing is to make sure they're doing this unconscious bias training across the organizations. Because by its very name, the fact that it's unconscious is means that people don't mean to do that. It's just deeply ingrained in who they are. And until you learn about some of these things and see how it's all playing out, there can't be change. Also, once they get women in the organization, provide a network for women. Make sure that there's sponsors for these women, mentors for these women, 
and that um, the women are feeling welcome. And so it's up to those sitting in the meeting. If there's a woman in the meeting that's not necessarily comfortable sharing the opinion or is not being heard, this is when people have to step in and say, what do you think we can do? And make sure you're getting everyone's understanding and everyone's viewpoint so that everyone feels like they're part of that organization. So what about universities? You know, I mentioned in the first segment that when I walk into a classroom, I don't really see a lot of women in these classrooms. I really don't. And, and some of the, the, the subjects that we recruit out of, some of the expertise that we need um, in cybersecurity. And so are they doing the right thing? I mean, do they? Because I even look at their curriculum sometimes, and I look at the curriculum for cybersecurity. And I'm like, that's not a cybersecurity curriculum. But I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I mean, I'm still trying to figure this out. What, what say you? In all fairness to universities, I would say by the time a girl or a young woman is 16, they've already turned against the STEM fields. That's too late. So organizations are, sorry, universities have to partner with middle schools and high schools. The universities are kind of dealt the hand that they're dealt. So when these people come in, most of them have already decided whether they want to go into a STEM field or a non-STEM field. And to really affect change, we've got to start before that. And that's why these cyber camps for girls in middle school, we're actually going to be putting on an event um, in our Atlanta area coming up about talking to students and showing them what cybersecurity really means, getting them passionate about that at an early age. So when they go into the universities, the universities have more women to work with. And then there's some great university programs out there where they're really encouraging women. They've got women leaders as part of their capture the flag type events. Um, NYU is a great example, doing a lot of great things. Augusta University is doing a lot of great things around um, students into cyber and these competitions and, and getting women involved. So there's a lot of great examples of universities that are, are doing really good things, but we've got to start earlier than that. By the time they get to the university level, for most of them, it's too late. So staying in the education space, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it really falls on the shoulders of the, the, the high schools, it seems, maybe even the middle schools to start, you know, educating females on the opportunities in this space and making some changes, maybe even in their curriculums and opportunities that they, that they offer uh, to make sure that when women get to universities that they're just not already turned off by the whole thing. Right. I spent a day not very long ago at Cary High School near where I live, and I spoke to four classes about careers in cyber. And what was very interesting to me, though, was that the classes that I spoke to were computer classes. So when you already looked at the mix, they weren't even. There were still more boys in the class than girls. And this is where we did talk earlier. It's these middle schools and high schools and guidance counselors and teachers who really have to understand. And one thing we didn't touch on, George, is that this is a very lucrative field, right? The starting salaries for this are extremely high. There's virtually zero unemployment rate because we have such a a shortage of cyber workers. So this is a great field for students to get in. And um, we just have to make sure that they know about this and they know about the deeply analytical um, cognitive abilities they get to use and and the fact that it's very much a team sport. And I think we'll start to see more people interested in it. So 
What about organizations? Now, even, even for Task Force 7, Task Force 7 is going to be, in, in some respects, an organization. It's going to be a, a vertical professional network for cybersecurity professionals. What do you see in organiz- cybersecurity organizations? What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? Well, you know, it's interesting. This past year, we saw a major conference get slammed in the media for releasing a schedule that had one female keynote out of 20. So think about that. One female out of 20 in the large security conference. What sort of example does this set for women in the field, first of all? Um, So organizations play a major role. They're often uh, very visible. And so things like that are, are a major setback. There's also been stories of very hostile environments at some of these shows, things like booth babes, inappropriate games that have been played that really you know, set the wrong tone for these events. Women have to be treated as equals. They can't be showed off for having a nice dress on or, you know, getting people into the booth and then not knowing anything about security. That just perpetuates the myth that women um, don't know as much as men in this field. So organizations, especially those large organizations, play a really vital role in shaping the landscape that we're seeing. So one thing we mentioned earlier in the in the first segment and the, well, the second segment was that men have a huge role here as well. And obviously, I mean, just statistically speaking, if nine out of 10 other people in this industry are men, they have to have a huge role in changing this whole thing. I mean, it's, it's just kind of commonsensical, but what exactly is the role that you see? What do we need to do to be, what are the things we keep, you know, to, keep uh, to keep doing? What are the things we need to change? Uh, what, do you, what do you see as, as men's role here? I think men are the key to this. And as you said, you know, nine out of 10, right? We've right. got to get men to jump on the bandwagon for this. Right. A minority group by itself cannot bring about the change. No way. So what's very interesting is, is men, I think, have a hard time necessarily knowing what it's like to be in the minority because they've never experienced that. So one of the things I, I want to do is just take a minute, if it's okay with you, to read a letter to the editor that actually came out in 2015 and has stuck with me since then because it's an amazing, powerful example of a male who actually understands and is aware now of some of the challenges that females have to face. Okay, let's do it. So this is a letter by Jared Malden, who was a senior in engineering, and he wrote this to his female classmates. And he writes, to the women in my engineering classes, while it is my intention in every other interaction I share with you to treat you as my peer, let me deviate from that to say that you and I are in fact unequal. Sure, we're in the same school program and you're quite possibly getting the same GPA as I, but does that make us equal? I did not, for example, grow up in a world that discouraged me from focusing on hard science, nor did I live in a society that told me not to get dirty or said I was bossy for exhibiting leadership skills. In grade school, I never had to fear being rejected by my peers because of my interests. I was not bombarded by images and slogans telling me that my true worth was in how I look and that I should abstain from certain activities because I might be thought too masculine. I've had no difficulty whatsoever with a boys club mentality, and I will not face added scrutiny or remarks on my being the diversity hire. When I experience success, the assumption of others will be that I earned it. So you and I cannot be equal. 
you have already conquered far more to be in this field than I will ever face. That's a pretty powerful letter. I think it's an amazingly powerful letter of just starting with understanding the different challenges that women have to go through being the minority in these types of fields. And once men understand that and really think about that, then they can become allies. They can be the ones that are helping drive change. They can make sure that they're mentoring and sponsoring women. They can make sure that they're not doing anything in meetings to talk over women or not listen to the ideas. So there's so much that men can do. And the first step really is understanding the differences. And again, I think that you go back to if you're not living that life every day, you just don't think about it. So a letter to like this to me is extremely powerful. Well, it definitely is powerful. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, if a lot of people aren't experiencing these things, they tend not to think about them. But I, I do think that when men are educated on some of the things and actually sit in a room and hear some of the things that women have to go through from day to day, because I've been in these sessions and these training sessions, it does provoke a great deal of thought. And I can see it in the men's faces like, wow, you have to deal with that. Like one, you know, I heard one time when a woman was saying, though, she even, you know, you don't have to go to work to fear for your safety. I'm like, someone fears for their safety at work? I mean, what, right. is, that, what is that about? Like, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I, I would never think about that, right? Anybody, you know, uh, I don't see anybody as a threat to, you know, to, to me at work. So, and, and so that is something that I never thought about. Um, and I think it enlightens men. So what else, what else do men need to do to change this dynamic? Do not stay silent. If you see something going on, speak up about it and don't tolerate locker room talk. I've heard of organizations that, you know, in the open, men are very politically correct, let's just say, but behind closed doors, they're still uh, rating women on their appearances, keeping spreadsheets of how women look, right? These sorts of things cannot be tolerated. So if you're a man that sees that, you have to take responsibility for speaking up. The other thing is, Don't pass over a woman for a job because you think that she won't want to travel or because she has children. How many of these roles don't go to women because when you're considering the candidate, someone says, oh, she has a new baby. I don't think that's the right job for her. How do you know? Did you ask? Right? So there's a lot of things on a a daily basis that men can do to make sure that women are given these sorts of opportunities. So the last question I have before we wrap this up is I want to ask about the role of women. And, and, and one thing I do hear a lot in the industry is that women have a lot of complaints about other women and how they're, how other women treat them in the industry. And if I heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, women will say, man, I, I, I really dread working for another woman. I want to work for a man. And, and have, have, do you have any experience in this? And, and what are your thoughts on that? A lot of times when we talk about uh, uh, things in the workplace, um, it, it's, it's a lot of times it's the women that, that I think that are really just very tough on other women, especially when it comes to promotions and, and interviews and things like that. I will say that I have had amazing female bosses and I have had terrible female bosses. I've had amazing male bosses and I've had amazing and horrible male bosses. So I don't know that that is so much of a gender 
issue in terms of sometimes the underlying personalities may not clash. But one of the things that is very important is that women do need to support other women. And that's really why I became interested in it. When I formed the group on women in security, I didn't need that group for me, right? I did that really for others that I have a very outspoken personality. You may not know, George, but, you know, if someone doesn't listen to me in a meeting, I'm going to say the same thing again. I'm going to call them out, (laughs) right? But there's a lot of women that are not comfortable with that. So I wanted to give them a place to hear from others, to feel um, safe and to learn. And so we have a responsibility, those of us in the field, those of us in high positions in the field, to help mentor along other women. But we also have a responsibility to do the same thing with men. So I really try not to focus my efforts exclusively on women because we want, right, I don't want people to hire women just to hire women. We want the best and brightest in this career field. And that takes all kind. And that's my message, that diversity really is a business imperative. It's not just a nice to have. Well said, Shelly. So, Shelly, it was an honor and a privilege having you on the show to talk about this very important topic. I know that you're really busy all the time fighting the good fight, and I'm humbled that you found some time to come on with us. I hope you come back often. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, George. Okay, folks, you've run out of time once again. That was fast. (laughs) But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.